Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Jim Millward about his new book, The Silk Road, A Very Short Introduction. This was published with the Oxford Very Short Introduction series just very recently in 2013. This is a book that is very concise. It's very readable. It's the, the prose is very vivacious, very vibrant. And what it essentially is, is an introduction to Silk Road history that's meant for a general reader, someone who's maybe not necessarily an expert in the subject, and that can also be used to teach in courses that touch on or are devoted to Silk Road history or world history or Central Eurasian history in a number of different ways. So the book, rather than trying to simply distill a kind of narrative thread that you can see repeated in a lot of um, popular and current Silk Road histories, what the book tries to do is take an approach that engages some contemporary problems in Silk Road history and in world history, and to bring them out and make them part of the narrative in what's a very engaging way, in a way that really engages the reader's critical faculties and critical sense, and doesn't just um, you know try to lecture at you about facts um, related to Silk Road history. So it's it's very interesting in that way. Over the course of our conversation, we talked about not just Jim's approach to teaching Silk Road history, um, to how we came to this project, but also some themes that emerge from the chapters in this book and from the structural decisions that he made when putting together the narrative that are very broadly germane to really any attempt to write world history, global history, to engage with those issues, or to talk about exchanges broadly writ in the historical record and, and today as well. We also talked about lutes and banjos, so definitely stick around for the last part of the conversation um, for that part of the talk. Okay, well, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. We're here today to talk with James Millward about his new book, The Silk Road, A Very Short Introduction. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Jim, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Carla. I'm so pleased to be here. So could you start us off by saying really just a little bit about yourself and your background? What brought you to the field of Central Eurasian Studies? Well, I started out, uh, I guess, way back when in, in college as a classics major. And through various sort of turnings, uh, ended up having a chance to go to China when I was sort of between my sophomore and junior year. And this was back in the early 1980s, 1981 it was. Um, and a couple things came out of that. Obviously, I decided I liked China and started learning Chinese. Uh, and as I'm sure many of your listeners know, you, know, you sort of start out in the language and then there's a period of time when you're trying to decide what to do with it. Um, and I actually remember as a kind of you know, snotty junior Thanksgiving, or maybe I was a senior at that point, being at some relative's house, 
um, in upstate New York. And it was one of these scenes where the you know, mothers were in the kitchen baking pies and the fathers were all in the living room sitting in bark loungers with cans of beer. And Jim was wandering around ostentatiously with a copy of um, Bajin's Ja under his arm, you know, sort of trying to read it in all the various rooms. And um, so Uncle Larry looked at me and saw this and said, ha, Chinese studies, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> so, um, so I'm glad, you know, that I, I find something to do with it. But, um, yeah, so that got me into China, and eventually I found my way to, uh, to history. Uh, and then, um, but on the way, there was sort of a legacy of the classics that I studied. And I, after I graduated from college, I was at Harvard, and I had a job um, with the Let's Go travel guidebook. Oh, yeah, sure. And um, they sent me, possibly because of my classical back or my, my background in classics, they sent me to Greece um, for the summer, which was, you know, you couldn't ask for a better <laughs> job than that. I got to travel around the island. I had to produce a lot of copy, but um, it was great fun. And, and Turkey as well. And so uh, I, I left the northeast of the U.S. and I went to um, Asia, where I was going to be spending the next year doing Chinese in Taiwan, um, via Greece and Turkey. And I had a great time in Turkey. And so, you know, thinking in this kind of crazy blue sky way that I think young people can do, I was thinking, how can I link up this new interest in Turkey that I've just developed uh, with my uh, chosen metier as a China scholar? Um, And I thought, hmm, Xinjiang. (laughs) And so that's sort of why that planted the seed of uh, looking at you know, far western China, uh, at that point I wasn't thinking so much about Central Asia outside of China, but I was interested in Xinjiang, started reading about it and some of the travel literature, uh, and so on and so forth. And um, it was interesting because at that point uh, there wasn't, there hadn't been a lot of recent work on on the area at all. There was you know, the odd news account. Um, there was some concern about you know possible uh, you know, separatism and uprising and so on. So it's always this kind of ticking story in the news. Uh, but not a lot of recent scholarship, in part because people couldn't go there. And so I read a lot of things from you know, the 30s and 40s, um, you know, travel accounts and um, some of Owen Lattimore's early work. Uh, and it was interesting because Xinjiang had been much more part of China studies in that early, even pre-war generation than it was in the 1970s, uh, you know, early 1980s yet. Um, for, for the China historians uh, in your audience, they will be familiar with Paul Cohen's book, Discovering History in China, uh, and the move to sort of have a China-centered history of China. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and so, and that was the period of time and the historiography and the scholarship that I came up in the field uh, in, and we were kind of turning to China and not looking at China um, you know, as as reacting to the West, uh, moving away from impact response, less stress on diplomatic history of China, which of course had been had played such a big role in the Fairbank era approach to China. Um, and so, uh, within that context. I wanted to work on Xinjiang, and nobody was. And I, at points in graduate 
at points in graduate school thought, hmm, well, maybe I should do, I don't know, peasant rebellions or something like that, because that seemed to be more where the, where the field was. Um, but so I was kind of, you know, shooting in the dark. Um, and I did have some people, I was at Stanford for my PhD, um, and um, Albert Dean was there on Asian languages, but he had great interests in nomads and in Central Eurasia uh, as part of his work on um, early medieval China. Uh, so we could sort of help me a little bit, but it was kind of a strange um, and, and a little bit scary thing to be working on. Uh, uh, but, you know, I stuck with it. I'm very glad that I did and ended up, um, as you know, writing a couple of books about Xinjiang, my dissertation uh, about Qing Xinjiang, and then I did a survey history of, um, of the region. Um, and in the meanwhile, for my, for my teaching as part of my you know, stable repertoire of courses, um, I added in a survey on, and, and, and work, began to work up, a survey on Central Eurasian or Central Asian history. Um, again, there were some intentional and some accidental reasons for that. Um, the accidental reasons included the fact that I ended up working at Georgetown where we had China historians and Asian historians who were teaching those standard surveys already. Uh, and I came in after a couple of years teaching at University of Arizona as under a line known as intersocietal history. And I sort of had to sell myself as someone who did the study of uh, the interstices, the study of contacts between cultures and civilizations of borderlands and frontiers. And, and that wasn't a hard case to make, given you know, that I'd been working on Xinjiang and Mongolia and so on. Uh, but then I kind of had to live up to that uh, that name of my line as you know, intersocietal history. Um, and there are... There's a strong interest at Georgetown uh, in in world history or in intersocial history. Um, some of the courses that I that I taught the master students was sort of a, a world history survey. Um, obviously, at the graduate level, you can't uh, survey in any level of detail, but we tried to look at issues of interactions over the long durée. Um, and I also taught world history at a basic level. Right? So, so those perspectives were there, and I was absorbing them from some of my colleagues and from the teaching duties that I had. And um, I was able to work them into the design of my course on, uh, on Central Eurasia uh, or on Eurasian history. And by Central Eurasia, I include everything really from, uh, from the Caucasus all the way out to... Manchuria. Uh, sometimes it's a cultural definition, sometimes it's a geographical definition, sometimes it's ecological, with a focus on the steps. It sort of varies with the time period and so on. But I, I have a very broad approach. Uh, and and in, in developing that course then, uh, it is very natural to not simply talk about nomad empires, or not simply talked about you know, China's relations with the, the Xiongnu or the Turks or the Mongols and so on, uh, but to broaden it, to look at what the role, uh, again, over the very long durée, what has been the role of Central Eurasia and Central Eurasian peoples uh, in 
on the broader canvas of oral history. Uh, and that's the, the general approach that I've, that I've worked on. Now, the book that we're talking about today is a general history of the Silk Road for, on the one hand, it could be for general readers, but also um, one can imagine teaching with this or, you know, using this to learn a lot about a region that we don't specialize in, even for academics. So you've, the book is also a part of the Oxford, a very short introduction series for listeners or readers who might be familiar with other um, other examples of work in that series. Now, you just talked about a survey that you put together in Central Eurasian History at Georgetown. Was that ultimately the impetus for putting together this book? Or if not, um, can you talk about how you came to work on a project like this and how this particular book in this particular um, series actually came about and how that relates to the, the work that you're doing in terms of your teaching and your research? Sure, sure. Uh, I wouldn't say the course was an impetus for the book exactly. Uh, it certainly provided the underpinnings, uh, and I've drawn on the, you know, the course and some of the material I have in lectures and perspectives and so on uh, in the book. Um, but the, the, this is, is a book on so the idea of the Silk Road. It's not an attempt to do a, a survey of Central Eurasian history in general. There are you know, some other good ones on the market for that. Um, but uh, various things. I mean, I've, I've been uh, obviously working on, on Xinjiang all this time, working on Central Eurasian history more generally. But the concept of Silk Road you know, comes up. Uh, there are there are lots of books and museum exhibitions and you know, even an NHK documentary uh, using the Silk Road. And in many ways, it's still, and, and I, I had learned over time when trying to explain what is Central Eurasia, what am I interested in, what I work on, sometimes for the Uncle Larrys of the world, um, needed to explain it in terms that, um, you know, I could get across more readily. And generally people have heard of the Silk Road. So sometimes I would just say, you know, for, uh, as, as a shorthand, say, oh, well, I'm a historian of the Silk Road, or I work in the Silk Road, or something like that. And then, you know, people sort of more or less know what, what that is. Um, more than that, though, and, and this is perhaps, um, well, I'm admitting kind of the meretricious side of this project, um, but, you know, Silk Road is, is kind of a marketing concept in a way. It's, um, you know, an attractive idea. Uh, it plays on all the exotic aspects of the region that bring people into it. And so uh, when I, not long after I first became familiar with this Oxford series, these very short introductions, and I think like many people, you know, the first time I saw that, I stood there at the little bookshelf, wherever it was, and started pulling them off, saying, oh, wow, you know, quantum physics, oh, gee, you know, Foucault, you know, boy, I really should phone up on these subjects. And you end up, you know, walking out with, you know, three or four of them, usually. They're sort of like candy that way. And so the penny dropped, and I thought, aha, and I looked up, and I saw they didn't have a Silk Road one. And of course, at this point, they had, you know, China history or Chinese history and the various other things that I might be able to approach. But they didn't have the Silk Road, and so I pitched it to them. Uh, and so initially, you know, that was it. It was like, aha, this is a chance to do a, a short book. It might sell some copies. Uh, I'd be able to write in this somewhat more popular mode uh, that I'm enjoying writing in after having written uh, the survey of Xinjiang history, um, Eurasian process. Uh, and then the more I looked at the series, and, and I, I realized that actually there's a, um, 
you know, other than just being attractive little paperbacks um, that are reasonably priced, uh, they are really trying to do something which I think is quite important. And that is, they're not an encyclopedia article, right? They're not a a longer version of the Wikipedia page on a given subject. What they're trying to do more than simply provide an introduction is to bring readers into some of the debates, into the conversation uh, within the field um, in in an interesting way, but without overwhelming them, of course, with specialized material right off the bat. Um, And so that then got me thinking, okay, well, rather than just to go through and tell the same old stories and anecdotes about the Silk Road that you know, every other book on the subject has done, maybe I can think about the subject a little more broadly, um, maybe a little bit different in, in a different fashion, maybe in a, perhaps in somewhat controversial fashion, uh, and um, and then have you know still more fun in in writing this this, this short book. So what, what to you, before we get into um, the, the structure of the book and the contents of the book, because you've just mentioned it, um, this is probably a good time to ask you about this. You've mentioned that you wanted to get into some of the more controversial aspects of Silk Road history. So for you, what were some of the most con- or the more controversial aspects of Silk Road history that you brought to your work in the book? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mainly uh, the well, controversy may be making slightly too strong a case about it, but um, there's some differences in the field or differences in people's ideas uh, over the definitions, both uh, geographical and and chronological, uh, and also about really what the Silk Road was. Um, And and we have an image when we mention it, uh, which generally involves camels and caravans, it involves marketplaces, you know, filled with luxury goods and spices, obviously silk, things like this, um, you know, flowing across the continent. Uh, but our image also, I think, if, you know, people interrogate their image a little bit, think about it, it also is, is quite focused on China uh, and on Rome. We tend to think about uh, things moving from China to Rome or the other way uh, as what makes the Silk Road uh, important. Uh, and in various ways, each of those concepts are, are if not entirely wrong, then they misplace the emphasis, uh, at least the emphasis I see it on, so, uh, what is important about, about the Silk Road. So the, the Silk Road really is a, it's, it's a modern term. It was invented in the late 19th century by a German geographer, um, um, von Richthofen, no. Uh, is it? Sorry, you read the book more recently yeah, than me. It, yeah, it's, it's um, not von Richthofen, is it? It's um, I think that's you mentioned von Richthofen in the book, um, and then you mentioned the, it was used as a um, title by a different guy. But I think von right, right, right. Hermann was the guy who used the title. But von right, and then there's Snoop, then there's Snoopy's Red Baron, who was right. the I believe the nephew of von Richthofen. Right. So, um, invented then by von Richthofen as a term for uh, trade of Chinese silk, you know, in roughly the first century uh, uh, of the Common Era, um, and from then sort of expanded, and we got this idea of you know, Chinese silk moving um, for centuries and centuries uh, across this sort of great highway across Asia. And uh, uh, in fact, the, the 
the opening of, of Central Asia and Chinese contacts uh, to Central Asia and from there to India and Iran and to a very slight degree to the, sort of the Mediterranean basin in Rome and so on. Uh, that happened for a couple of centuries there at the beginning. Um, but by the 6th or 7th century, there was really uh, very little Chinese silk at all, um, certainly in, te- in form made up as, as textiles. Uh, flowing that far, in part because the technology had escaped from China and other people were making it, particularly in Persia, um, in part because there were, uh, our, our idea of this sort of vast market for you know, Chinese products, um, which is colored by the contemporary, you know, what's going on in the contemporary world, we're all buying all these Chinese products, uh, that never really um, existed for Chinese silk. Silk was never a commodity that was traded in, in huge volumes. Um, it was a luxury good um, which you know, went to the very, very uh, affluent uh, in small amounts at all. So, so that's sort of part of the, you know, the misnomer. And as I say in the book, you know, uh, neither silk nor a road um, you know, discussed. Uh, so that was one uh, thing I wanted to try to correct. Um, Another aspect that I was hoping to, uh, to bring out, or a question that I wanted to address, um, is a, a a belief, a very a statement we see very commonly in the scholarly literature, particularly in sort of textbook type literature, uh, that the Silk Road ended, you know, died, or became moribund uh, in the 16th century, and then this and that and this end, this death of the Silk Road, has been linked. To the rise of direct maritime communications between Western Europe and uh, Asia. Uh, and that's a very compelling argument, particularly for you know, world historians, uh, because it links up all sorts of things. It connects old world trade um, and sort of, you know, the story of, of how the old world ticked along um, with what's going to be the, the story of modernity and the opening of maritime communications, ultimately the new world, and so on and so forth. Um, and so, as I say, it's a very compelling argument um, that once ships were flying the waters between Europe and uh, Southeast Asia and China, uh, then you know, that diverted trade in Chinese luxuries uh, and killed the Silk Road. You know, it makes a certain amount of sense. The problem is it's wrong. And it's wrong for various reasons. One reason it's wrong uh, is uh, simply, we, we can demonstrate empirically uh, that although there were some sort of down times, you know, even quite long for periods of decades or centuries and so on, uh, by the 18th century uh, and 19th century, particularly after, particularly after the Qing dynasty uh, you know, reopened, well, conquered Xinjiang and reopened trade routes there and so on, um, t- trade with Central Asia, trade with Russia, uh, and trade in items that look very much like the traditional Silk Road. Horses for textiles. I mean, you can't get more typical of Silk Road trade than that, right? And Sima Chen talks about this, and um, this was how Han relations with uh, you know, Xiongnu involved these kind of trading, and, and the, the Tang with the Turks, and so on. So you can't get much more Silk Roady than horses for textiles. And there's huge amounts of horses for textiles trade with Kazakhs, uh, with Mongols, with Tibetans. Um, and Chinese silk, Chinese rhubarb, um, 
were moving from central and southern China all the way out uh, to to the steppes, ultimately to you know, Russia, even and so on. So, you know, if that's not Silk Road trade, I don't know what would be. And that, unlike earlier epochs, uh, that we actually have really good documentation for in the uh, Qing archives. I mean, you can you can get actual quantitative data um, and precise quantitative data on silk exchange for Kazakh um, horses and other livestock. So, and anyway, there's, there's that. Um, and a scholar named Scott Levy has also done work looking at trade from uh, North India uh, through Central Asia with Russia uh, and the role of the, played by um, Samarkand and Bukhara and their merchants as entrepôts and intermediaries in trade between Mughals uh, and Central Asia and Russia. And he shows a very similar sort of story. There are tremendous amounts of trade, um, traditional style, overland caravan trade, exchange of forces for textiles, and so on, going on in modern times. Um, so that's you know just an empirical problem with the idea that the Silk Road died uh, once maritime trade with Europe opened up. But really, it's a conceptual issue more than simply an empirical one, because um, this idea that overland trade routes would be in competition with the European-Asian trade routes, again, is based on a notion of what the Silk Road was that's not accurate. It's based on an idea that it was, what was important about it was that it was large volumes, um, something more similar to modern kind of commodity trade, uh, the kind of things that could be diverted and therefore would make a difference uh, rather than uh, sporadic, fairly uh, small volume trade in luxuries. Uh, and so on. And also, there's one other uh, shibboleth, I guess you could call it, about the Silk Road, and that's this focus on long-distance trade between the Far East and the Far West, um, the, the horizontal, the East-West uh, side of it, mm -hmm. uh, rather than looking at local, regional, relatively shorter distance, but still not, you know, still covering a lot of ground. Uh, trade between civilizational centers, um, that is, the big population centers, urban agrarian civilization, uh, and the nomads of the steppe, uh, be they in Mongolia or to further west. Uh, and in fact, if you really want to find large volumes of exchange uh, historically, you're not going to find it in the on the backs of camels led by individual merchants operating as private entrepreneurs. But rather, you're going to find it in state-sponsored uh, exchanges, um, so interstate exchanges. Uh, in particular, China, uh, I've mentioned just a moment ago, uh, the trade uh, in, you know, in textiles um, or in later days in tea for livestock from nomads. Right, And this was, for the most part, carried out under state auspices as part of Chinese policies for dealing with nomad groups. Uh, it was very much a strategic kind of trade. It was important strategically, much more than it was important economically. And again, as anyone who's done some Chinese history knows, uh, these kinds of exchanges were often carried out by Chinese states uh, at a loss, but in order to achieve strategic goals rather than uh, economic than to, to make money off of them. Um, so the other aspect of this then is 
what is sometimes called north-south or trans-ecological trade uh, between urban agrarian societies, China, but also India, Iran, uh, and peoples of the of the steppe. And when you realize that that the Silk Road is much more about that, and and that those exchanges were both larger and arguably historically more significant than the relative trickle of of goods that got all the way from one end of Eurasia to the other. From that point of view, then, you, you quickly realize that it doesn't matter if uh, Dutch or Portuguese or later even British vessels are making it all the way from the northwestern peninsula of Europe uh, to China, because they're not going to uh, interrupt the, the regional exchanges between nomad groups and, and Chinese uh, or other urban agrarian societies. Great, thank you. You actually have mentioned a lot of, um, have touched on a lot of the really interesting things that come up in the various chapters of the book that I was going to, um, and, and I'll ask you about different aspects of um, in the time we have. So thank you. So let's talk about the structure of the book. The book is organized into six chapters that each take a different thematic approach to narrating the history of the Silk Road, however problematic that, you know, Silk Road here is in scare quotes. So if I had my scare quote cast in S, I'd be Right. No, you're allowed. To, I, I use the term. Um, in fact, I have you know gone back and forth. Do you capitalize Silk Road or right, you know and so on and so forth? So, you know, That's right. and I, I, I'm trying to make money off of this concept, so you know I allow people to use the term. <laughs> okay, okay. I usually keep um, my little castanets around. Oh, it's sonically punctuated. Oh, that's good. Yeah, okay. yeah. I highly recommend it for talks. But uh, so the six chapters collectively, and I'll just read them out very briefly, um, especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to take a look at the book, Environment and Empires, Eras of Silk Road Fluorescence, The Biological Silk Road, The Technological Silk Road, The Arts on the Silk Road, and a kind of concluding chapter that pushes us forward um, that's called Wither the Silk Road. Now, collectively, these chapters raise really important issues that are relevant not just to Silk Road history, but that also speak to conceptual issues, issues of craft and of narrative in world history and really history writing more generally. It's, it's kind of taken together a snapshot introduction to some of the major conceptual approaches to world history writing. And so I think there's a lot in the book um, that's obviously uh, specifically germane to Silk Road history, but there's a lot to take out of this for readers who are just interested in world history more generally. So yeah. as we move into the body of the book, can you talk a little bit about that structure and those decisions? Why, um, why did you come up with these particular themes for these chapters? And were there any major transformations in how you thought about the structure of the book from the time you started working on it until the time that it was published? Yeah, I think um, well, when I first thought that I would do a Silk Road book. Again, there's, you know, there, there's a chronological approach that one can do, I think. Um, other books that have been, that have been written have, that, that have focused more on China have, have more or less gone through um, the material, you know, so starting in the Han, uh, moving through to the Tang, um, generally kind of ending before the Mongol period, for some reason or another, but there's a there's an emphasis on uh, China's expansion into Central Asia, an emphasis on Buddhism, therefore the important context with India, and of course the great heroes, you know, the traveler Zhang Qian, um, on these ex military exploits, uh, Shenzong, the Buddhist traveler, and so on and so forth. So you know, the, 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 I think probably the 
first impulse is just to kind of go through that material again and tell those stories. Um, and I wanted to do something a little different. And while not decentering China entirely, I wanted to, or, or, or decentering is not the right word, but um, I wanted to put in this discussion of the Silk Road, I wanted to put China in this broader Eurasian context. Um, and so to do that, more or less following the trajectory of Chinese history was not going to allow me to do that. Um, and then as I thought about it thematically and and started developing my arguments that I wanted to make about the Silk Road that I was just talking about, um, I realized that what the Silk Road really is, or, or the way I'm using the term, uh, is as kind of a shorthand for the history of of exchanges across Eurasia uh, over a long period of time. Um, yeah, I, I've just argued that one can con continue it into modern times. One also can begin well before the first century. One can begin with really the first humans coming out of Africa and populating the Eurasian continent uh, and exchanges of early agriculture, um, of domesticated plants, animals, and so on and so forth. So, uh, that's how I wanted to use it as as a uh, as a shorthand, kind of as an iconic term for the, the very long term process of of exchange, not just of goods, but of uh, ideas uh, and and also biological material across uh, and throughout Eurasia. Um, and a analogy that came to me in the process was that of the Colombian exchange. Which of course is very traumatic, and in historical terms, very sudden. Uh, the so European, the advent of European of, of Western Europeans uh, on the North American continent, with all of the you know, uh, biological effects and other sorts of things from that, and that happened in you know, relative blink of an eye with very traumatic uh, impacts. But I think a similar kind of long-term exchange took place across Eurasia, uh, not a sudden flow, but rather you know, an ongoing trickle. But nonetheless, the overall effects of this were analogous to that of the Colombian exchange. Um, so that became kind of the model that I wanted to look at. And so um, once I thought about it in those terms, then the structure of the book broke down to introducing the general ideas. Um, and then I had to throw in a chapter, which is kind of a nutshell his political history of that's chapter two, Eras of Silk Road Fluorescence, of uh, of Central Eurasia uh, and the, the major nomad empires and some aspects of their relations with China and other uh, sedentary agrarian powers. And I wanted to do that simply so that I could refer to these groups um, without having to always be explaining along the way. Uh, because one thing you learn very quickly during Central Eurasian history is that um, it's no comment on the readership, but this is not something that we get any kind of exposure to in you know, the normal course of uh, an education, right? We learn very little, maybe about the Mongols, but we tend you know, learn very little about these groups. So um, I had to kind of throw that in there. I hope people can get past, uh, or don't bog down in chapter two, which you know I, I am kind of lecturing a little bit and giving a lot of information in that. And then the main body of the book uh, are, is really a series of examples of exchanges, um, biological, technological, uh, and artistic, uh, before I come to the end and you know, wax philosophical on what, what I think the Silk Road means. 
Now, one of the things that's very striking about the style of the book, in particular the narrative style, is the way you're relating the here and now of you as a writer and of your reader to the history of the Silk Road, sort of the present to the past. The prose is actually really funny at times, it's very vivacious, and it's always making connections between the past and the present. Now, this is true not just for um, the, the sort of readability, the style of the book, but it's also true in terms of how you're approaching some aspects of Silk Road history. So as we move into the first chapters, and you know we may not get to all the chapters today, mm-hmm. let's at least try to get to some of them. Okay. Um, one of the things that happens in the first two chapters, um, the first one in particular, but this also comes up later in the book, is that you're able to relate Silk Road history in general to some more contemporary world historical themes. And so you're playing here with ideas of globalization and in its analogy to what's happening in Silk Road history. You mentioned um, the term cosmopolitanism a couple of times in mm-hmm. the first couple of chapters. So would you talk a little bit about that? Because that's another aspect of doing world histories and doing the history of uh, this kind of region or set of regions or historical entity um, that can be... Uh, it's something that I think all of us who are working on world historical kinds of themes are have to negotiate for ourselves, right? To what extent do we um, do we use concepts that are coming from contemporary um, geopolitical conversations to describe what's happening in the past? And I think you do it very effectively here, but you're very. Um, it seems like you're very conscious of using that kind of language in here. So I would love if you could talk a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, part of the reason for the uh, contemporary references, I think, is simply uh, I was trying to have fun with it uh, as I went, and you know, and to, to bounce back and forth and try to make some of this stuff as relevant as I as I can. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I am. Uh, I, I just spent five minutes trying to explain my notion of the Silk Road, but I could have simply used the word globalization and probably would have gotten people. Close to what I meant, you know, much more quickly. Um, yes, I'm, I'm very much treating the Silk Road as, I guess, proto-globalization would be a little bit, uh, a slightly better, better term. I think I use both in the book. Um, the, sort of with one, with one caveat, in that what we think about globalization today, um, you know, we think about it as something relatively new, and it's closely associated with. Uh, high volumes of exchange of, of trade around the world, uh, and also with very high-speed interactions, both the way we personally move around and also obviously the way we communicate. Um, now, and in yeah. ancient and medieval and even early modern times, uh, not so much stuff was moving, and it wasn't moving so fast. And that's this is obvious. So, so, so quantitatively. When I'm talking about the Silk Road, you know, it, quantitatively, it's not uh, comparable to modern exchanges. But I think qualitatively, uh, it is. And so that's why I'm, that's very much, as you say, the model of how I'm, how I'm thinking about it. Another thing that comes up early in the book that's really interesting, and this is something that also I think um, for those of us who spend any time teaching um, Central Eurasian history or teaching world history, this, this tends to be. Um, a feature of many approaches to Silk Road history is in a 
some sort of invocation of the importance of the environment, the climate, the geography, in influencing what's happening in Silk Road history, but also more generally in influencing human society and politics. So mm -hmm. you, how conscious were you in putting this together? Um, of uh, How much did you want to emphasize that? And how much did you include that um, as a kind of uh, matter of course, because this is something that, you know, we do uh, see in a lot of Silk Road history. So how important is it for you to foreground that or... Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm, I mean, in in Central Eurasian history in general, uh, the way I teach it, and I think the way a lot of people do, uh, is almost to well, well read. I, I begin almost anthropologically uh, looking at pastoral nomadism. You know, what is it as a way of life? Uh, why is it adopted? Um, how is it connected to agriculture? Why it's different from hunter-gathering? Uh, why it's not particularly primitive, um, but it's rather you know, a technology in and of itself of using livestock to get energy out of the out of the land, uh, out of grasslands when people can't eat grass, and so on and so forth. Um, but one thing that emerges very very clearly from that kind of approach, and this isn't original with me, and, um, in a sense, Owen Lattimore when talking about. You know, the steppe zone and, and China and the marginal zone between you know, the marginal Great Wall zone between uh, China and, and Mongolia. Uh, he was very cognizant of this too. Uh, is that the, the ecological differences between the deserts and steppes of Central Eurasia and agrarian lands uh, sets up a an economic dynamic uh, that, in many ways, shapes very political military relationship between agrarian powers and steppe powers. Um, and it also sets up a certain sociological and political dynamic uh, among steppe peoples themselves. Uh, very briefly put, uh, it, the, the organization of the you know, nomadic tribes of Central Eurasia um, tends to be segmentary uh, and it tends to oscillate between periods of fragmentation uh, and relatively few but uh, very remarkable and important periods of unification and confederation. Um, so, you know, when the great nomad empires come together, uh, the Turkish Hagenet, or obviously the Mongols, um, when they did come together like that and were able to concentrate military power, there were uh, very few sedentary societies that could uh, withstand uh, withstand them. Um, so that dynamic comes out of is closely related to ecological factors. Uh, and also you know, so the ecological slash uh, economic aspects of pastoral nomadism as an economy and as a as a life way. And it, there's an interesting kind of danger here because you know historians caution against uh, geographical determinism. Um, and in fact, if you read, for example, what Gibbon said about nomadic peoples, or even what some of the Roman writers and, and the ancient Greek writers said about them, uh, they saw them nomads living very much in a state of nature, uh, as very much creatures of nature, somehow often less less human, um, and responding to uh, these natural signals and behaving the way they did because they're you know more like beasts than humans. Um, 
ironically enough, with this focus on ecology, with interest in environmental history and trying to look for environmental factors uh, behind in human society and how humans interact and so on, there's kind of a danger that we, you know, that we, that we um, you know, take the old lady of geographical determinism and dress her up again in new garb uh, as environmental history, right? So one has to be sort of aware of that. Um, nonetheless, it's, it's a very, very striking kind of relation um, that, that one sees. And as I mentioned before, in part, it's you know, the ecological differences between these parts of Eurasia uh, that, that sets up the exchanges um, that are how I talk about, um, talk about the Silk Road. There's one other factor related to this that, that I could have mentioned a moment ago. Um, the reason I spend some time talking about nomadic peoples at the beginning of the book uh, is that it's not simply that they were there in the lands in between or the lands over which the Silk Road traveled, uh, but in fact they were very, very active agents uh, in determining what sorts of things got exchanged and how they got exchanged. Uh, and this happened in a variety of ways. The most basic level I was mentioning, you know, textiles for livestock exchanges. Obviously, they needed that kind of trade. But even the luxuries uh, and you know, foodstuffs, but you know, artworks, uh, other sorts of things like that, uh, is very often the, the consumption choices of nomadic elites, particularly at times of great empires, uh, when they you know had power, when they could. And bring people from, from vast or over vast distances you know, to their courts, be it in northern Mongolia uh, or um, so the northern part of Xinjiang or wherever. Uh, they were actually determining uh, what kinds of things were exchanged. There were also important nomadic states, in particular the, the Kushan state uh, in the first and second century AD, located in what is now Afghanistan, Bactria, as it was known then, in northern India, uh, who played a, uh, a very important role in mediating the, uh, the, the dissemination of Buddhism as, as patrons of Buddhism and supporters of Buddhism and as conveners of a great uh, religious conclave uh, for Buddhism. Uh, you know, they played an active role in uh, assuring that Buddhism spread uh, out of North India and helping it get into Central Asia and, and to China, and also shaping some of the ways in which, you know, what schools, what sutras were important and so on, uh, it went through the Kushan uh, area. So, um, again, there's a ne neglected historical role for nomadic peoples, which is why I really wanted to make sure that so I got those, uh, that history into this book. Thank you. Now, there's also a chapter um, that I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about because you've already sort of um, talked a little bit about it, but I just will mention it just to flag it for listeners. This is the chapter two, uh, or the second chapter, rather, which looks at, um, it's a kind of capsule political history of the Silk Road region, and it looks in particular at the importance of centralized states and confederations in shaping the political history on the Eurasian step. So I'll just kind of mark that. Um, it's a really interesting part of the book. What I want to do is move, though, uh, briefly from environment and geography to kind of a related set of issues, and this comes up in the third chapter of the book, The Biological Silk Road. Now, you, you say in this chapter, and it's, it's really interesting here for this reason, that biological exchanges, and you talk about several kinds of them, um, you, you use examples of grape wine, of horses, 
We talk about DNA as a way to map human migrations. These biological exchanges, you say, provide a map, a kind of a map to the multi-directional networks that were the Silk Road. And so this is a way of not just um, giving a snapshot of, from another perspective of Silk Road history, but actually creating a kind of historical map. Um, so this, I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that, but specifically what I wanted to ask you about is something you talk about in this section called the full Monty. Mm-hmm. So you talk in this section of the book about another kind of, um, I think of a biological network that maps Silk Road interactions, and this was a network of dumplings, including the uh, kind of Swabian or Swabian meat ravioli mm-hmm the little god cheaters you talk about on 63, and to which the book is actually dedicated. So can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of dumplings for you, and, and how did this become the dedication of the book? Uh, well, um, I don't, yes. I mean, anybody who's eaten dumplings, I think, will, will understand why one probably should. Exactly. Eventually, so, yeah, no. Um, yeah, well, I think um, there's a lot that goes into a dumpling. And one thing is, in, uh, one kind of little problem that I had or issue that came up in writing, in, in, in dividing the book up the way it did and, and having a section on the biological Silk Road um, and distinguishing that in particular from, from sort of technologies uh, is that, well, you know, what is, let me just sort of start with silk. What is silk? Is silk a technology or is it a biology, right? Reading of silk. And, um, when you look at the making of a particular kind of dumpling, well, that, I guess, you might not usually call it technology, but, you know, cooking, cooking methods and skills, it's more in the sort of area of um, art and science and ideas rather than in you know, pure biological exchange, for example, of pathogens, right? Which world historians might talk about that way. Um, but so there's a certain blurring, uh, blurring here. But, you know, if we think about what a dumpling is, and here I'm talking mainly about gyoza or gyoza kind of dumpling, peking ravioli, right, with a, with a thin skin around a meat or vegetable uh, filling. Um, and, um, well, generally that outer skin is made of wheat, and this is hard wheat, uh, which itself was exchanged uh, very early on uh, from the Fertile Crescent uh, to China. Uh, and the Far East, it had quite important effects in China uh, in that it allowed for you know a third winter crop in North China of, of grains to be grown. It complemented the uh, millet and barley, which were probably indigenously uh, domesticated in China, um, but added this other important food stuff there. Um, and then the, there, there are various reasons to suspect that the Dumpling itself, that is the, the Jalza kind of dumpling, or known in Turkic languages and Korean and many other languages as you know, um, Mante, Mandu, there's a whole bunch of these sort of related words. There's reasons to believe that um, if not a step invention itself, it was uh, closely related to, uh, uh, to the steppes or to Central Eurasia. Um, I sort of asked around and asked some linguists and this and that, and there's, of course, this interesting uh, uh, similarity between the word mantol, you know, for steamed bread in Chinese, and manta, 
And if you look at the characters from Monto, well, there's nothing really in them to suggest that um, there is the sort of green or the food radical on, on the side. But there's nothing really to suggest that this is an uh, ancient Chinese term um, as opposed to possibly a transliteration of a word from another language. Right. But uh, it's probably very difficult to get to the absolute bottom of this one way or another and say whether you know, manto, which in ancient times, such so long times, manto actually had fillings. So they were more similar to Jiaozen than, than manto are today. Uh, in any case, there's this association of, of the word um, all across Eurasia, this emergence of this word. Um, and then also um, our earliest example of a uh, Montais or Jauza is actually one that's fossilized, was found uh, in a grave site near Turfan, dating back, I think, to the 6th century or something. You can see it in the Turfan Museum today, uh, a ossified or fossilized, fossilized dumpling. Uh, and then some indications from how the analog to this foodstuff in, in Russia, the Pilmini, uh, the folklore about it is that Russian hunters learned about this from um, Siberian tribesmen and that it was used when out on hunts you know, they sort of make these and have them frozen and you just simply could boil them up for a quick meal. Um, in any case, there's sort of a raft of intriguing connections to the step um, with this. Uh, and plus, of course, the basic fact that you know, wheat itself was exchanged across Eurasia to get to the bar. So anyway, to me, it seemed to be a nice symbol of these very early kinds of connections and the way in which um, the societies of Eurasia are linked. Um, now, I'm cheating a little bit with the um, reference to this Swabian or you know, German German dumpling. Um, I don't, German is not one of my languages, so I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. But these little god cheaters. And I just like the idea um, of, of that. And so I dedicated the book to them and all their cousins. They're called god cheaters because um, during Lent, the argument goes you're not supposed to eat meat, but you know, if you cut the meat inside a dumpling, then God couldn't see what you were eating. Um, I just like the cheekiness of that, of that idea. Well, so as, as we come to um, the last 10 minutes or so of our time, I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about uh, Chapter 4 or um, too much about the, the other chapters, but I'll just, again, signal for listeners that Chapter 4 um, is there. It's called The Technological Silk Road, and among the different technologies that you're looking at here are chairs, silk, um, textile for horse trade that you've mentioned earlier, paper, um, medical technologies such as attention to humors, uh, variolation for smallpox, and various kinds of military technology. So historians of technology or people interested in that part of world history um, might pay particular attention to that part of the book. Now, what I want to ask you about before we move to our conclusion actually is something that comes up in chapter five and this is the arts of the silk road it's, mm -hmm. it's a chapter that starts with um you're mentioning a, a children's tv program in taiwan in the early 1980s that invokes a kind of theme that you see um unity coming from the uh, putting a bunch of sticks together instead of and not being able to snap them instead of you know just being able to snap one stick this is a theme that comes up in a lot of different kinds of stories um that you 
I think, show us really nicely at the beginning of that chapter. And it's precisely this attention to the kind of exchange and circulation and movement of stories and of themes and motifs more generally um, that's so wonderful in this chapter. So the chapter looks at uh, the kind of movement along the Silk Road of stories, the Jakarta, the Panchatantra. Um, it looks at the movement of visual motifs, uh, such as the three hairs, the halo. It talks about Persian miniatures and blue and white wear. But for me, as a banjo player, of course, the things that... You're a banjo player. Yeah, I'm, I'm oh. a very bad banjo player. And of course, oh, the section of this chapter that I just loved, and my little note in the margin was, yay for lutes. Uh, was a section on lutes and the and lutes as a kind of technology or an art that you can see moving um, throughout this history. So, would you talk a little bit about that? Is there um, it, this is a particularly vibrant part of the book? It was really fascinating, and I think um, not just as somebody who's you know interested in this as an instrument, but um, it seems like you were also really particularly interested in this part of the chapter. So, can you talk a little bit about lutes here and what brought you to that as one of the examples? Sure, very happy to. But uh, let me simply say, uh, well, I'm a mandolin player and guitar oh. player myself, so um, great. We, we can talk some other time about uh, <laughs> pick some tunes together. But um, uh, your, your banjo, um, by the way, uh, has a genetic relationship to the Chinese arhu, mm -hmm. uh, somewhat similar to that between various types of dumplings. Um, I don't want to go too much into some banjo morphology, but um, uh, the uh, a lot of banjos, at least, have the neck goes all the way through, right underneath, inside the drum, comes out the other side as in a spiked fiddle or an arhu. In any case, those kinds of connections, um, and one can see in a lot of loops. Um, and actually, let me let me start talking about this with a with a. It's a broader issue that a lot of the connections and exchanges I talk about bring up. The one thing I had to think about, um, and that is the problem of uh, dissemination and direct connection uh, versus independent invention. Right, so convergence, as it's sometimes called, versus diffusion. And this, of course, these have been issues that have um, you know, troubled archaeologists in particular, and you know, sort of ancient historians. Um, some time. And it's an issue you have to sort of deal with because some of these things, you know, um, humans all over the world are very inventive and can certainly come up with uh, some of these ideas themselves um, in different places. And you can't always be sure, particularly looking at very old things, whether you're looking at a case of independent invention in different places uh, or of uh, evidence of of contacts and of exchange, um, and the the way that I came to dealing with this, and it's you know I'm not doing it at a you know, technical level like a you know archaeologist would have to do, and trying to see if I don't know two potsherds or the technology of weaving or something is related you know from two sites, but and just kind of looking at it um, as a rough and ready method methodology. Um, if there, if the particular item or or idea that you're talking about uh, has unique enough features, things that really sort of stand out, uh, or if the the two things that you're comparing and looking for connection between, you know, if if there is enough of those particular features similar to them, so for example, you know, a lump of dough with meat in it 
in and of itself, if you have you know two lumps of dough with needed and different ends of the continent, that might not be enough to, to say that they're closely related. But if they're crimped in that triangular way, like the jowls in both places, well, then you're closer to it. Okay, so roots are a very good um, sort of uh, area in which to look at those kinds of things uh, because we have both some historical evidence um, and you know, our historical evidence of uh, where these certain types of leaves began. And that's, again, in uh, North India, Afghanistan, we have our earliest sculptural representations of lutes with multiple multiple strings. There's earlier, what's known as long neck lutes with just a couple of strings, which you find earlier in the Fertile Crescent. Um, and then you just, you see, you know, the pipa, and you see various Indian instruments, and you see what's known as the barbat in Persia, and of course the oud in um, Islamic lands, Arabian lands, uh, which becomes the lute uh, in Europe. Uh, and so you can trace this to a certain extent historically, but again, also just looking at the instruments themselves, uh, there are certain features of them, aspects of their construction, uh, sometimes vestigial aspects of them, which play no particular function in modern instruments or in more recent instruments, but which harken back to a day when, for example, this instrument would have been bowed as opposed to flocked or something like that. Um, and so these instruments themselves, treated simply, treated simply as objects, regardless of the music that's played on them, uh, carry this kind of DNA in them, right? They, they carry in their morphology, in their construction, uh, evidence of where they've come from, that you, things you can sort of trace them back to. So in that sense, they're, they're really nice examples of silk road exchange. Um, but of course, they're also more than that. Uh, they, are, they are vehicles for presenting music and playing music. Uh, music is a meaning-laden uh, medium. Uh, and uh, also one that's actually closely related to, uh, to mathematics, uh, to science of acoustics, um, and so on and so forth. So there's a welter of associations in a musical instrument and in the music that they're played uh, that when we look at it in different places, it's very rich territory for both comparison and also looking for these kinds of connections. Um, and in fact, I'm working currently and have been even so before I did this Silk Road book, I, I started on a project um, on what I'm calling chordophone culture, string instrument culture um, across Eurasia. And um, as it's come out now, I'm probably, my next book will probably be on uh, Lutes on the Silk Road. Oh, wow. uh, expanding um, sort of on that little you know, seed that's in here, uh, but also you know, looking at the sort of semiotics of instruments, even in modern times, um, the sitar as a national instrument, for example, um, the meanings of the pipa, why, they're, why it was associated in early and medieval Chinese times with barbarians, um, why the chin is the scholar's instrument, while the pipa is something more popular, uh, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of these kinds of um, kinds of things. So, so that's my ne next project, and ultimately the one after that will probably be uh, the globalization of the guitar. Uh, so, but that's still you know some some time in the, in, in the future.
Well, great. Well, that's um, that's actually usually the last question that I ask, but I'll start. Sorry, no, I stole no, no, wind from your sails. Here, no, but. not not at all. I, you've put more wind in my sails because I'm now particularly excited to read those books as well. Um, so now, Jim, we've come to the end of our time, and there's of course a ton of stuff about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, including the um, including but not limited to the last chapter where you talk about you really take apart and take on this myth that the Silk Road died and show showed that's not really the case. And you also talk about some modern echoes of um, Silk Road language and of invocations of the Silk Road today or, or in, in the very recent past. Is there anything in particular about the book that we didn't have time to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I'd say that if there is an overall uh, it's a theme or thesis in the book. Um, and I, I wasn't too heavy in laying that on. Um, but I think it would be, and, and this is something I discovered from the process of writing it, um, it would be about the, the nature of exchanges. And I just mentioned a few moments ago, um, you know, we talk about uh, diffusion and convergence, um, whether something spread from point A to point B or whether it was independently invented in point A and point B. Uh, but in fact, that there are inter- there, there are hybrids and sort of intermediary versions of this. It's neither one nor the other very often. Um, and you know, maybe the, you know, the germ of an idea traveled that then was we, uh, we figured, we realized in a different place. Um, maybe then that new version of this, of the thing, the technology, the idea, moved back the other way and had more inspiration back there and so on and so forth. And so um, whether you're talking about uh, technology or art or religious ideas or music or any of these sorts of things, uh, it's not by any, the process of exchange over time, over space in the long durée is, uh, is not simple. It's very, it's very complicated. And then it also involves, uh, you know, transculturation processes where you know, ideas move along with things and sometimes get seated in a new environment. Uh, sometimes that new thing takes on different sets of meanings. Uh, and so as I'm you know, looking forward to this loot project and so on, I'm thinking very much about uh, the nature of exchange and the complexity of exchanges and interactions uh, in, in world history uh, and perhaps developing a somewhat more sophisticated or more complex vocabulary for talking about that than than we currently have. So that would be one thing. All right. And then um, just you mentioned the modern contemporary echoes. Uh, and this is something that astounded me uh, because, of course, when you're working on something like this, you look out for references in the news. Maybe you have a Google alert or something like that. Uh, and it's fascinating how frequently the Silk Road is evoked uh, not just in popular culture or as a marketing tool for restaurants and tourist companies and things, but by politicians and um, you know, the, the practitioners of international relations. Um, you know, China does it. Iran does it. The United States recently has rolled out a Silk Road program to try to structure relations between South and Central Asia in a way that we'd, um, that we'd like. Uh, and so it's very much a... Uh, a a current notion. It's a notion to conjure with uh, the historical 
resonances of this term uh, remain very important uh, today, which is why I think politicians and nations are reaching for it as a way to define or redefine uh, the relations between states in Central Eurasia. Well, thank you, Jim, so much for taking the time. Um, the, the current book is great, and I'm really excited to see um, the next projects as well. So best of luck with your research on cordiform culture. Um, and it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carla. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>